Okay, the story begins, friends. We are on page nine, middle of the page. Continuing with the famous Mishnah of Elu Devarim. These are the precepts. Let's first um, understand the context of why we recite this Mishnah. We've recited the blessings prior to the Torah study on the previous page. We've delved deeply into the meaning behind those blessings and the significance. Right before doing a mitzvah, you got to do, you recite the blessing, you got to do the mitzvah right away. We got to minimize interruption, right? So you, you wouldn't say the blessing prior to putting on tefillin and then at some point in the day, don tefillin or say the blessings prior to lighting Shabbat candles and then at some point, light Shabbat candles. You got to minimize interruption. You got to do it right away. So we say the blessings prior to Torah study. We got to study Torah right away. So the first thing we do is we recite the priestly blessings and we discussed in, in depth the significance of that. Starting Torah study with peace, the priestly blessings was all about peace. After studying a passage of Torah, we now go on to study a passage of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the oral law, the oral tradition of when God gave the Torah at Sinai, there was the written Torah, which is quite ambiguous, and it was explained orally. Eventually, that was written down in brief bullet point form and recorded into the Mishnah. And this is the Mishnah that we traditionally study. Let's go through the Mishnah, the entire thing in English. It's actually a compilation of two Mishnahs. Um, we'll go through the entire thing in English and we'll discuss its inner significance. Middle of page nine. These, we'll just read through it quickly. These are the precepts for which no fixed measure is prescribed. We'll explain what that means soon. Leaving the crops of the edge of the field for the poor, the gift of the first fruits, the, but the pilgrimage offerings brought when appearing before the Lord on the three festivals, deeds of kindness, and the study of Torah. So that's mission number, number one. It concludes with Torah study, relevant to the blessings of the Torah we just recited. Right, the value of Torah study in the morning. The second Mishnah, or second teaching, these are the precepts, the fruits of which man enjoys in this world, while the principal reward remains in the world to come. Honoring one's father and mother, performing deeds of kindness, early attendance at the house of study, morning and evening, hospitality to strangers, visiting the sick, dowering the bride, escorting the dead, concentration and prayer, bringing peace between man and his fellow man and between husband and wife, and study of Torah is equivalent to them all. Again, it concludes with how Torah study basically trumps everything. Let's take it from the top. These are the precepts for which no measure is prescribed. Generally, mitzvahs have parameters to them, have measurements to them, which is why there's so much detail in halacha. There's 613 commandments, but how much books are, are discussing just 613 commandments? There's myriads and myriads of writings and pages and discussion and debate. And the reason is because there's parameters to everything. And we're trying to understand what the parameters are, right? Say, take something as simple as Shabbat candles. It's very simple. Light Shabbat candles. Okay, but when do you light the Shabbat candles? How early is too early? How late is too late? How long should the Shabbat candles light for? Who's supposed to light Shabbat candles? What happens if there's nobody there to light Shabbat candles? What happens when you're traveling? There's all these various parameters, right? Something as simple as matzah. Just eat matzah, right? Why be so complicated? Okay, but how much matzah? What's the time frame for which you need to eat the matzah? How do you bake the matzah? What's considered matzah that's kosher? For, everything has parameters. But in this list, we list the exception. There are some mitzvahs which have no parameters to them. One of them, the first, is the second line of this paragraph on page nine. Leaving the crops of the edge of the field for the poor. Okay, what's funny about translations is that's an entire sentence. In Hebrew, it's just one word. <laughs> Look on the Hebrew side. Elu devarim, these are the things, she'en lehem shi'or, that have no shi'or, that have no measurement. Hapeya, the mitzvah of peya, which in English they translate into that entire sentence. Anybody know what the word peya means? It comes from the word peyas, peyot. 
who's familiar with payas, right? The sideburns. Paya means the edge, the sides. In this context, Paya is referring to the edge of the field. And there's a biblical command. If you own a field in Israel, you got to leave the edge of it unharvested for, for, for poor people to come and take. How much of the field should you leave unharvested? The answer is as much or as little as you want because there is no measurement. The Torah prescribes no parameters to this. What's interesting is in the context of where this mitzvah is mentioned in the Torah and Leviticus, commentaries point out that it's juxtaposed next to discussing the sacrificial offerings that were brought on holidays particularly the sacrifice that was done on Passover in the Beit HaMikdash. And commentaries suggest the reason for this proximity, for this juxtaposition. We can always do payah, the mitzvah of leaving the edge of the field, even without a Beit HaMikdash. And it, a sense, is reminding us that even well beyond the existence of the structure of the Beit HaMikdash, Judaism is still going to thrive. And it's, this is as if we're bringing a sacrifice. You can't bring a sacrifice like we once did, uh, like we once were able to. We can still be generous with payah, with leaving the edge of our field. So in the Torah, it's juxtaposed next to the idea of the sacrifices. The Maharal of Prague, who's heard of the Maharal of Prague? Rabbi Yudha Lawi of Prague. Rabbi Yudha Lawi of Prague lived in roughly the 1500s. He is a direct descendant of King David. And there's a lot of descendants of Rabbi Yudha Lawi of Prague, the Maharal of Prague. The, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was from the Maharal of Prague, Rabbi, um, the chief rabbis of Israel, the Lao lineage. They have the same last name. They come from the Maharal of Prague. Maharal of Prague has brilliant teachings on Torah. And here's what he explains. The Torah discusses the mitzvah of Peah leaving the edge of your field for the poor people, right afterward discusses the day of judgment, Rosh Hashanah. Right, That's where it's listed in the Torah and Leviticus, suggesting that there's a connection. What is the prelude to having a good judgment on Rosh Hashanah? Being generous. So he says Jews don't need to worry or be intimidated about judgment day because we're generous. We're centered around God. Even our fields, our planting, our work centers around God. That is the trajectory of even our basic work day. So what are you worried about, Rosh Hashanah? What type of year we're going to have? We're generous. Of course, God wants us to have a good year. That's going to enable us to continue that generosity. Okay. Let's move on to the next. Uh, third line, and, and stop me anytime if you have any questions, thoughts, comments. Um, question, question for you. Yeah, go for do, it. Do I remember incorrectly that Maimonides commented and set parameters for these in the Mishnah Torah? Okay, excellent question. Excellent question. First of all, that's an awesome question. Um, an impressive question. <laughs> Good memory. Biblically, there are no parameters to the mitzvah of peya. The sages did set parameters to the mitzvah of peya, and that's what Maimonides was referencing. And the reason why the sages set those parameters were something to the effect of: if if it's not con concrete, there's no way to really make sure it's going to get done. Um, when things are concrete, you get them done. Right. When you have a very defined job, this is what I need to do. You have a to-do list. But when if, it's, if it's just, yeah, make sure you're being nice. It's, so, so the sages do have that uh, of the Sanhedrin and beyond, and, and, and you know, did have that authority, and that, and that is the reason. But on a biblical level, and that's all we're going to go on a biblical level, though, there are no parameters to it. I guess there is the where we should be ideologically <laughs> or idealistically. <laughs> 
And where are we practically? And how do we bridge that gap? You would think that uh, they, were, they probably saw problems in people. Maybe the edges got smaller and smaller and they right. had to do something about it. Slowly, slowly. So, yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, I don't know the history of it. It could have been an abundance of poor people that needed to have been fed. People I mean, were being... On that specific one, I mean, didn't it, didn't it turn out to be like 10% of your fields or something like that? So, so there is the, the notion of tithings as well. So the, the, the structure of running a field in Israel in the framework of halacha is quite socialist. <laughs> you get to keep some at the end of the day. You know, there's the payah, there's the tithing, there's the gift to the Kohen, and then at the end, you know, the gift to the levy. At the end of the day, you get to keep some. <laughs> um, the that, that's not to say that Judaism is necessarily socialist as a whole. There, you know, the, I think I may have said this story, or maybe I said it to a different group. I don't remember. There's a group of rabbis on a train discussing what political party Judaism is most in line with. Is, is Judaism capitalist, fascist, socialist, communistic, uh, democratic? They asked Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Shneerson, the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, they asked him his, his take. So he said, all of you are correct and incorrect. There's elements of all of these ideas scattered throughout Judaism. And the parts that are incorporated in Judaism and Torah are, you know, those are legit and real and parts of it are are human made as well and human human fashioned as well the the next mitzvah that has no parameter to it third line of the paragraph the gift of the first fruits in the hebrew it's the second uh, it's the last word on the first line the habikurim the bikurim so when you have a tree first three years you don't harvest that tree the fourth year the uh fruits the first of those fruits are taken to jerusalem and they're eaten there the fifth year you could eat the fruits freely so the first fruits that are brought to jerusalem you eat them there in jerusalem there's a service that's performed together with the cohen and it's done as a thanks to god as a um a sign of appreciation Everything I have is from God. So I'm going to give back to him my, the first of everything, the best of everything. How much? Up to you. Now, there may be rabbinic parameters to this as well. I don't uh, know. John, it suddenly became morning. Because <laughs> um, I was uh, telling about the lake that's behind me that can't be seen right now because it's nighttime. Where's it. the alligator? <laughs> oh, at I have to find another picture that would take too long. So, so just there, there is exi existential and spiritual significance as well to the mitzvah of Bikurim, the first fruits. In many it's places, the Rebbe would explain that, um, you know, the, the Torah says later on, Adam eats hasaden, parsha, the parsha of uh, Shoftim. Person is like a tree of the field. We produce fruits. We're here to produce. We're here to produce fruits are often uh, metaphoric for passion, for energy, for vitality. And our first fruits have to go to God, which means when we wake up in the morning, the very first thing we dedicate our energy to is to God. We say Moda'ani. Right. And as we discussed in our Moda'ani class earlier, Moda'ani is essentially making a decision. What type of person am I going to be? The Hebrew word Adam, referring to mankind. Adam can mean earth. Adam could also mean similar to, as if we are similar to God, we're created in his image. And through Moda'ani, we're making a decision. Am I just dirt? Am I coming from, am I facing the earth? Or am I connecting to above? Am I connecting to something higher? What is my first energy going to be invested in in the day? And that's the Moda'ani. And that's alluded to in the Bikurim. We then move on to the next one. The third line on the English, the last word, 
the pilgrimage offerings brought when appearing before the Lord on the three festivals. In Hebrew, one word. <laughs> First word of the second line, Vehara Ayon. Say that six times fast. <laughs> Vahara Ayon means appearance. There's a mitzvah to appear before God. For, to let God see you. Show your face. Three times a year. Passover, Pesach, Shavuos, Sokis, the pilgrimage. And um, together with that pilgrimage came an offering. Now, how much should you show your face to God? Should you be there for a minute? Should you be there for 10 minutes? That's up to you. There's no measurement. How much should you invest in the offering? Up to you. There's no measurement to it. Now, uh, as a side thing, what's interesting is the, the base Hamikdash, the holy temple, was not just a place for sacrifices, that's what was done there, but was a home for God. We couldn't handle the revelation at Sinai. We learned this in our Tanya class in chapter 34. We couldn't handle, it's actually going to be tomorrow's portion of the daily Tanya study cycle. We couldn't handle the revelation at Sinai. It was too intense. Right? What happened? We, uh, our, our souls expired, right? Moses had to revive us. We finally said, Moses, why don't you just communicate what God wants to tell us because we can't handle this. So what did God say immediately after the Sinaitic event? Let's build a sanctuary. I could dwell in there and now you could come to me when you're ready and experience me. The sanctuary, the temple, essentially was a home with which we would come and be inspired to experience God. The Talmud says, just like you would come to the temple to be seen by God, you would appear before God, you would come there to see as well. It sounds a lot more poetic in the original Hebrew, but nonetheless, you'd come there to be seen, you come there to see as well, to experience God. And that experience is immeasurable, unquantifiable. You can't measure that experience. You could at best describe it. Which, by the way, just parenthetically, shows how beautiful our generation is thousands of years later. We don't have that experience. Yet look how committed we are. Look how dedicated we are. Six Jews here together studying Torah thousands of years later. Without that experience, that's what the holiday of Purim also celebrates. The holiday of Purim celebrates our commitment to Judaism, even though God was not experienced. We experienced God at Sinai, but how long did that experience last for? It didn't last too long. We were unfaithful just 40 days later with the sin of the golden calf. Finally, at Purim, our sages tell us that's when we really accepted the Torah. That's when we showed no, we're not experiencing God. God is hidden. The Megillah is one of the only books of the Tanakh, which doesn't have God's name. The word Esther, the Megillah of Esther means hidden. The word Esther means hidden, concealed. Yet we still stood strong and committed to our Judaism despite the persecution of Haman. That's why it says Moses was the most humble of people to have graced the earth. Why was he so humble? If I spoke to God, I don't know how humble I would be. Come to me for advice, I'll tell you. Moses was humble because he experienced God and he knew our generation didn't, yet we're still just as committed. When reciting that one word, Vaharayon, meditate on this, just that one word. Imagine where it's going to take our prayers, where it's going to mean. Okay. Next, we have Gemilut Chasadim in the Hebrew. In the English, it's, how do they translate it? Deeds of kindness, benevolence. Gemilut means being benevolent with kindness, giving, being a giver. It's similar to charity. The difference is, this is actually on a greater scale. Charity is for poor people. Somebody who's poor needs charity. Being kind 
as applicable to poor people as well as to the wealthy, it's to everybody. There is no measurement to it. There is no limit to it. And then finally, we have Talmud, Torah, the study of Torah. How much Torah are you supposed to study? As much as you possibly can. Right? Jews study Torah as much as they possibly can. I just saw a picture. This is crazy. We, we know what's going on in Ukraine right now, and it, it's quite, it's crazy. <laughs> um, I have quite a few colleagues in Ukraine. There's a yeshiva in Ukraine, a Chabad yeshiva in Ukraine. They're studying Torah. Ukraine is apparently the third largest, I didn't know this, the third largest Jewish uh, community in Europe. The yeshiva just fled. All the students, all 60 students and their teachers got on a 14-hour train ride. I think they're going to Poland and then they're, they're on their way to Germany. And they're relocating, at least for now, in Germany. What's crazy to me is I, I read about these stories as a kid of back in Poland, people, the, the yeshiva Bachram had to be relocated because of the war. It's like, oh my gosh, this is happening in 2022. Anyways, I see a picture of these guys on a 14-hour train ride. Now, if what would you think to do? You don't have to answer this, but just this is a rhetorical question. What would you do if you were on a 14-hour train ride? Running away from bombs, running away from your life, you're away from your family, you're hoping your family made it out as well. Right? Check your phone, sleep, cry, drink, I don't know, something. What do you do? You see pictures of these kids studying Torah. That's what they're doing on the train. Because how much Torah are you supposed to study? How, you know, we, we in, in our Tanya studies, in chapter five of Tanya, we use the concept of Torah, Torah study is euphemistic for being intimate with God. How intimate do you want to be with God and how often? How, do we, how much do we want to ingest this relationship? As much as we possibly could. Because we're obsessed. There's no measurement to it. Tefillin has a measurement, just to give a contrast here. You put on the tefillin once, for a couple of seconds, you did the mitzvah. Right? Hanukkah candles, they stayed lit for a certain amount of time, you did the mitzvah. You're done. You don't have to light it again. Shabbat candles, whatever it is, oh... Charity. You gave a certain amount of charity, uh, uh, of charity to to you know, to tzedakah, of money to tzedakah. You did the mitzvah. Okay, you could do it again. You could do more. When it comes to Torah, you study the Torah. Okay, I did my studies for today. Great. There's more. <laughs> every single moment, we have an opportunity to engage in the relationship. At the end of every single tractate, when we finish a tractate of Talmud. We'll make a big celebration. It's a big, joyous occasion. And at the end of each tractate, we say, we're going to come back to you. We will return. We're not done. There's always more. Torah study has no measurement to it, no end to it. Okay. That's the first half of the teaching. In the Siddur, they're incorporated as one long teaching. But from where they're called from in the Talmud, they actually are two separate teachings. Uh, before we move on to the second half, any comments, questions, reflections, thoughts? We're good. We're all in the boat here. We're all in the ark. Okay. The second half. These are the precepts, the fruits of which man enjoys in this world, while the principal reward remains in the world to come. Generally, the world, the, the, the reward for mitzvahs are experienced in the next world. Now, what does the next world mean? This is just parenthetical. It's not, but it's an interesting discussion. What does the next world mean? Next world can mean one of two things. It's a debate amongst the Kabbalists. There's a debate between Nachmanides and Maimonides as to what this means. According to Maimonides, the world means you die, you go to heaven. That's the next world. You're going to experience the reward for your mitzvahs. 
according to Nachmanides, no, the next world means the Messianic era. It's not a different spiritual location. It's right here, soul and the body, the Messianic era. And we're going to experience the value of our mitzvahs in that era. When you do a mitzvah, you've elevated the world. You brought light to the world. You've connected the world to God. The word mitzvah itself means connection. But we don't necessarily see that connection. And that's why we try to have kavana with the mitzvah so we could try it, our best to experience it. But we're going to fully experience it in the next world. When Mashiach comes, we're going to see everything we did. We're going to see the value of everything. Right? It's like the, the electrician working on all the electrical wires when there's a power outage. One day it's going to get plugged in. That last mitzvah is going to tip the scale. It's going to get plugged in. We're going to see all the lights come on. But until then, okay, we're just doing mitzvahs. But there are certain mitzvahs, though, where you actually reap practical benefits right here, right now. Um, perhaps it's the, it's not the principal reward, but it's the fruits. It's that's a part of it you can enjoy. It's not the tree. It's the fruit of the tree, if you will. And here are the mitzvahs. Number one, honoring one's father and mother. Honoring one's father and mother is a mitzvah, which you're going to experience the true beauty of it in the next world, but you reap the benefits here. Um, on a very practical level, you're going to have shalom in the home. It's going to be a peaceful home. Commentaries point out something fascinating. Where, where does the mitzvah of honor your mother and fa father uh, appear in the Torah? Anybody remember? It appears in the Ten Commandments. Right, it's number sixth of uh, of the Ten Commandments. How many times are the Ten Commandments listed in the Torah? Twice. One in the Parsha of Yitro, as the Jews have exited Egypt in the end of the toward the middle of the book of Exodus several weeks ago, and then one in Deuteronomy. Ten Commandments are listed twice, and commentaries and and for the most part the verbiage that's used for both commandments are pretty much the same. It's pretty much the same. Uh, it's almost copy and paste with minor differences. I shouldn't say minor differences, with differences. And commentaries try to figure out what the differences are. One of the most famous of differences is, in one of them it says, guard Shabbos. In one of them it says, mention Shabbos. Right? That's... Like we say in the Lechadodi, Shamor Vezachor Bidibor Echad. God said it really at simultaneously, Shamor Vezachor, guard and mention. But in, in, the, uh, in the Torah, they were mentioned separately in the Ten Commandments. But one difference is when you look at the commandment of honor your mother and father, in the first set of tablets, my commentaries also explained it's two, command, two, two sets of Ten Commandments because there were two tablets. So in the first one, it says, honor your mother and father. Full stop. In the second set of commandments, which is the second tablets, honor your mother and father because I am the Lord, your God. It gives a reason because God said so. And commentaries wonder, why didn't God need to say it the first time? Why does he need to say that the second time? I'll give you a hint. It has something to do with the golden calf. The Jews were unfaithful to God. The inspiration wore off. The inspiration of Sinai wore off, which was the need for the temple in the first place. The I hope I didn't offend anybody. No, I'm kidding. The, 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 the inspiration wore off. So they're unfaithful to God. Moses breaks the tablets. Moses beseeches on behalf of the Jewish people, to God, forgive them. Now God gives them a second set of tablets. And now he has to, he, the assumption is we've been desensitized. And we need to be told, do this, not just because, do this because God said, 
It went without saying. It was obvious. Of course, you're going to honor your mother and father because that's sacred. Afterward, we've become desensitized to the sin. And now we try to philosophize things. What's a good reason to honor your mother and father? And the problem with philosophizing with Judaism is your commitment is only as far as it makes sense to you. God wanted us to go gung-ho about this. So he said, don't philosophize. It's because I said so. It's not about the philosophy. When we philosophize things, this is a little bit of a tangent, but when we philosophize things, we, we, that doesn't, that's not to say we shouldn't understand things. Don't get me wrong. It's not to say we shouldn't understand Judaism. But once we, if the motivation is our understanding, we will be motivated only to the extent with which we understand. So I, I got to tell you a great story. It's not fully relevant, but it's a beautiful story and it's semi-relevant. I just read it this morning. In um, the late 1800s, maybe mid-1800s, there was a group of Jews called the Maskilim, which literally translates as intellectuals. They would philosophize with Judaism, but not, by, not just for the sake of understanding it, which is necessary and important. The important part of the relationship is understanding what we're doing, which that's what we're doing right now, right? We're not just going through the city, we're understanding it. But their philosophy was, we're only going to do it and be committed to the extent that it makes sense to us. And if certain things don't make sense, we're not going to believe it. We'll be fully observant. We'll keep Shabbos. It makes sense. At least to them it did. We'll keep kosher because it makes sense. There's certain things that we, or we can make sense of it, I should say. But if there's something that we can't make sense of, we're not going to believe it. So one of these uh, people were having an, a debate with Rabbi Shalom Dov Ber of Lubavitch. He was, no, he was the uh, fifth rabbi in the Lubavitch uh, dynasty, if you will. And he, they were having a debate. They were traveling from the town of Lubavitch to some sort of resort town um, would be the equivalent of like going to, to the Catskills for the summer. You know what I mean? Like, like everybody leaves the city. So they were traveling to some sort of resort town and they were carpooling together. They're in this horse and buggy wagon. There were no cars back then. And they're having this long debate. Do, does prophecy exist in Judaism? Do angels exist in Judaism? Um, prophecy and angels are related because prophecy is by means of angels. Maimonides, by the way, writes in his 13 principle, core principles of faith of Judaism that prophecy is one of those. But they're having this debate, does prophecy exist? And he says, it just doesn't make sense. I can't wrap my head around it. How could I believe in this? How could you subscribe to this? Have you ever seen an angel prophecy speaking to something higher? Like, come on. Mind you, this person was fully observant, did the mitzvahs, but he was lacking certain core fundamentals of faith. So the Rebbe told him, you're going to love this. This is just brilliant. The Rebbe told him, there's three characters here on this journey with us. There's you and I going to this vacation town resort. There's the wagon driver. And there's the horses. And these three characters are three different perspectives on life. If you ask you and I, why are we going on this journey? We need the vacation. We need to recharge. It's beneficial to our mental health, our spiritual health, our physical health, whatever it is. There's a reason for our journey. That's perspective one, number one. That is the purpose for the journey. That's the ultimate motivation for the journey. Perspective number two. Ask the wagon driver, why are you going on this journey? He doesn't care about the vacation. He needs to feed his family. He needs the money, right? The motivation for the trip for him is money. It's not the reason for the trip. It's the motivation for the trip. The reason for the trip is they're going on vacation. The motivation for the trip is he needs the money. Ask the horses, why are you going on this trip? I get fed. They give me some hay. I enjoy it. It keeps me going. I get whipped, keeps me going. 
is the horse incorrect? No, that's their motivation. But what the horse doesn't see is that there is a vacation town. There's more to it. Now, just because the horse doesn't see it doesn't mean it's not true. So the Rebbe Shab says to him, you have within you a horse, the animal soul. And your animal soul sees food, <laughs> sees what it could uh, um, appreciate on the spot. What it, 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 life centers around its sensory pleasure. That's your animal soul. It has this incredibly limited tunnel vision of what's right in front of it. What am I getting out of this right now? If you had perhaps a deeper, uh, if you can hack within yourself a deeper sense of identity, your soul, and appreciate the journey, the real reason for the journey, everything would click. Now, how does that relate to honoring parents? God had to tell us the second time, you honor parents not just because it makes sense, because God said so. Commentaries point out this is true with all mitzvahs, but this is um, especially true with honoring parents when it's less obvious. Um, okay, the next. So just real quick, is, yeah, is, that, is that the only commandment uh, in Deuteronomy that says, because I am the Lord your God? That's a good question. Um, I don't think so. But it doesn't say it by all commandments. So you, you would wonder why it says by some and not by others. But especially when you have two commandments listed twice, why does it say it by one and not by the other? But, but uh, good question. It does say it by, but it, there are many instances where it's not said. Perhaps in many situations, it's more obvious. Maybe. Um, usually where it says, because I am the Lord your God, it's usually to... An, to, to some sort of commandment that requires moral integrity. Give charity because I am, the, or do not ignore the poor person because I am the Lord your God, right? Nobody else, you need integrity. Nobody else could stump you on it. You could pretend you didn't notice, right? But God knows, right? The mitzvah of returning a lost object because I am the Lord your God. You could pretend that I just didn't notice it and I, I'm not in the mood of dealing with it and I, I, I don't, don't know what you're talking about. No, I am the Lord your God. There's, there's integrity. So usually when there's some sort of moral integrity, that's when it says it. But, but there's, there, are, there may be other situations as well. Excellent question. The next mitzvah. Um, it's, make it easier. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines from the bottom of the paragraph, the middle of the paragraph. Performing deeds of kindness, which we said earlier. Kimilut chasadim. Which, as we mentioned, is even greater than sadaka because you can be kind and make even wealthy people feel good, make everybody feel good. That's a that's a big deal. Okay, next is early attendance at the house of study morning and evening. Right? We discussed how much we value Torah study. But showing up early, I'm speaking about this after I showed up late to this class. <laughs> this is awkward. Um Showing up to synagogue early, showing up to mitzvahs in general, um, showing up early is a big deal. We derive this from Abraham. Abraham was called upon God to sacrifice his son. And commentaries, uh, it, you know, this was one of Abraham's 10 tests. And Abraham is extolled for this. That it, it's, an, it's a true act of faith. Now, the truth is, I mean, how could the Torah and how could God be so barbaric? And it's, it's a whole other question for another time. We can't get into that now. But the short answer is God didn't tell him to sacrifice his son. He told him to offer his son. Just offer him, right? Abraham understood him as sacrifice him. So it was a real test. He thought he was going to have to give up Isaac. It was one of the 10 tests, right? The binding of Isaac that we read by, we're actually going to read it in more detail later on. Commentaries ask, well, if God, you know, if we were called upon to do that, it would be a big deal. But Abraham communicated with God in person. God told them to do something. There's other heroes 
who've made incredible sacrifices and self-sacrifices, not even to their kids themselves, <laughs> in situations where God did not tell them to do so. What's the big deal that Abraham sacrificed his son? Now, it is a big deal. Don't get me wrong. He just sacrificed. But in, in the larger picture of understanding what Abraham was all about and comparing it to other righteous people who have sacrificed themselves, people in the Holocaust that sacrificed themselves for, uh, for God. You have people throughout history, Jewish history that have done this. What was so great about Abraham? And the commentaries explain what was great about Abraham is not that he did it, is that he woke up early to do it. And we learn from here that when doing a mitzvah, be like Abraham. Wake up early. Get there, on, get there early because you're anticipating it. We're excited about it. If we're excited and we really care about a mitzvah, we really care about Torah study or whatever it is, we're going to do our best to show up early. It's like it's an important meeting. We got to be there. Okay, the next mitzvah. Um, it's one, two, three, four, five lines from the bottom. Hospitality to strangers. In the Hebrew, it's also four lines from the bottom. Second uh, word. V'achnosas orchim. V'achnosat orchim. Guests coming into your home. This is a pillar of Judaism. We learn this from uh, also from Abraham. Abraham had a tent with four doors on each side because he wanted guests to have easy access into, into his tent, right? Abraham, in the heat of, his, of the day, on the third day of his bris, at the age of 99, was sitting outside waiting for guests. Finally, God sent three uh, guests. They turned out to be angels, right? They were there to share special messages. messages. Abraham had a son, uh, uh, sorry, a nephew, Lot. You familiar with Abraham's nephew, Lot? Lot was, he wasn't, he was no Abraham. We wouldn't classify him as righteous, although perhaps he was compared to the, um, to his neighbors because he lived in Sod and Sodom, which God destroyed. And Lot had guests as well. These three angels appeared to Lot. Lot welcomed them in. And Lot had a lot more sacrifice than Abraham did. Because Abraham just welcomed the guests in. Yes, it was the heat of the day. He was in pain. There was discomfort. There was the bris. He welcomed the guests in. But Lot welcomed the guests in at the risk of his own life. That was highly illegal in Sodom. Having guests being kind in Sodom? No way. This is why God wanted to destroy the Sodom. Why do we um, extol Abraham for having guests? And that's an Abrahamic value and not a Lot value. Lot had a lot more sacrifice. So I read a beautiful explanation from Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, and here's what he explains. Take a look at the, if you look at the text of the Torah, Three men appeared to Abraham. To him, they appeared as regular people. He didn't know that yet that they were angels. He invited them in. Eventually, they revealed their identity that they're messengers from God, they're angels. But he thought they were just regular Arabs. He thought they were idolaters. He had them wash their hands and feet, assuming that the dust on their feet was from idolatry. Yet he was still willing to welcome them, embrace them. Afterwards, he found out they were angels. Lot, on the other hand, look at the text of the Torah. Three angels showed up. Oh, come right in. If they were regular people, or if he thought they were regular people, would he have welcomed those guests? I don't know. Right? The real value of welcoming guests is not just the guests that we're comfortable with, but sometimes uh, the guest that is a little bit more difficult to have. Um. Now, obviously, there's other considerations with, with safety and things like that, but, but the, I think the point still rings loudly. There was a rabbi by in the late 1800s, or maybe early 1800s, sorry, the, the turn of the uh, 19th century. His name was Rabbi Yitzchak Vorki. Rabbi Yitzchak Vorki was a prestigious Hasidic rabbi, well-respected. And he was lodging in somebody's house as a guest. And he shows up, and the house was just immaculate. They made it beautiful just for him. 
because he was a prestigious person. There was candles everywhere. and They made it really beautiful. He got really offended. He said, I'm going to give you an ultimatum. You have a choice. You either get rid of all this stuff. Just treat me like a person. Or you do this for everybody. I said, but you're a prestigious person. He said, this is a mitzvah. It's not about the person. This is what God wants us to do. Whether the person's prestigious or not. So he says, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, it doesn't matter how big the shofar is. Is it a big shofar? Is it a small shofar? You got to blow the shofar. You got to hear the shofar. This is a mitzvah. This is no different. It doesn't matter. A prestigious person or not a prestigious person. We're all creating the image of God. And this is, this is God's commandment. Okay, next we have, we're almost at the end here, visiting the sick. In Hebrew, we call it Bikur Cholim. Again, translations can be dangerous. It doesn't really translate literally as visiting the sick. It translates as checking up on the sick. The mitzvah is not just to visit them. That could be burdensome sometimes. But it's to check on them. In other words, tend to their needs. And commentaries also explain part of that is the mitzvah of praying for them as well. Next is dowering the bride. In Hebrew, it's achnasat kala, bringing somebody into marriage. Um, that is usually referring to by means of finances, helping somebody get married, helping somebody in their life journey. The next is halvayat hamet, escorting the dead. What does that mean? Anybody familiar with this mitzvah? Is that basically from the time <clears throat> someone passes until the time that they're in the ground? They must be accompanied by a Jew at all times. Right. There's that the idea of having a shomer. And, and then at, at the funeral itself, we literally escort the coffin. There's an honorage of people following the coffin behind. And the reason is because we believe strongly that death is not the end of life. Death is a transition to a new phase in life. And just like in marriage, when one is transitioning, and I'm not here to, God forbid, compare marriage to death. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> in marriage, <laughs> we escort. The truth is, in every phase in life, at a bris, we escort the baby. At marriage, we escort the bride and groom. At death, we escort the person to their new journey because death is not the end. Afterward, we have concentration in prayer. In the Hebrew, it's uh, the third to last line, middle of the line, the iyun tefillah, which literally translates as going deep into prayer. So it's kind of what we're doing now for the actual prayers, but so we can go deep into prayer, really know what it's about, really connect on a deep level. Then there is finally, or not finally, almost finally, bringing peace between man and his fellow man and between husband and wife. This is one of the most incredible things in the world, bringing peace between people. This is what Aaron was extolled for. Aaron, the high priest, Aaron, Cohen, Moses' brother. I think we quoted the, the Mishnah from Pirkei Avot last week, where Aaron would say, pursue peace, love peace. We have to be students of Aaron, right? Why be students? We have to constantly train ourselves to bring peace, to be peacemakers, to make peace between people. One of the things Aaron used to do, the Midrash tells us, is when there were two friends that were fighting, he would go up to the other, to one of them and say, you know, your buddy that you're not getting along with really wants to make peace with you, he told me. And he really would like to get along with you. Um, he said, really? Wow. And, you know, there's a whole other side of him I never knew about. He would go up to the other guy, your buddy. It's only one line, not two, because the second time, <laughs> the friend really does like him now, right? Your friend wants to make peace with you. He likes you. Okay, you had, you're falling out, but you really should. 
And they would both meet up and they would get along and he would do the same thing with spouses. He was the first MFT. First marriage and family therapist, getting people together. And then finally, Torah studies equivalent to them all. As great as all of these mitzvahs are, Torah study trumps all of them. And even on a, in a halachic sense, we spoke about it. The obligation of Torah has no limits to it. Every single moment. So there's this notion of what's called bitul Torah. Neglecting Torah study. Is it ever appropriate to neglect Torah study, right? Okay, you have certain responsibilities. You've got to neglect Torah study, right? Um, we spoke about this in our Tanya class in chapter 37. If you're studying Torah and a mitzvah opportunity comes up, Torah study is greater than all of the other mitzvahs. Keep studying. Unless it's a mitzvah that can't be done by someone else. Right? If you're the only person that could do it, do it. In other words, never say, I can't help you because I'm studying Torah. That would, that would be antithetical to Torah. But if someone else is available to help, keep on studying. And the reason, is Torah, the reason why Torah study is equivalent to all, one of the explanations is besides for the spiritual power of Torah study, the spiritual value of Torah study, on a very practical level, there's a debate in the Talmud. Which is greater, the study of Torah, the performance of mitzvahs? And the, uh, the con there was a big debate and a big discussion back and forth, and the consensus was that Torah study is greater because study leads to performance. So when you have Torah study, you have mitzvahs, and you have Torah study. Because now you, that you have a comfortable, comprehensive understanding of Judaism, to the extent that one is able, and that's going to be to varying degrees for different people. Now mitzvahs are a breeze. You're able to do mitzvahs properly. Okay, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>